Welcome to Searching the Sacred. I'm Jason Steffenhagen. I'm Steph Spencer. And I'm Lisa Adams. We are hosting conversations about scripture for the curious, doubters, and hope seekers. We're inviting people to ask different questions. Questions asked by those who have been wounded and hurt. Questions asked by those who have deconstructed and are looking for a reconstruction. We're creating space for love, kindness, justice, and curiosity. We will wrestle, we will question, we will dance, we will dream, we will wonder, we will be frustrated, and we will hope. We aren't searching for singular answers or solutions. We are searching the sacred. Welcome to season two of Searching the Sacred. We are grateful that you are continuing the journey with us. If you're new to this podcast, we are so glad you found us. Feel free to check out last season, our first season. We also did a special New Year's bonus episode about beginnings. So feel free to check out our growing catalog of episodes. And to get this second season started, we're going to start with Psalm 1. I'm going to read from Robert Alter's translation. Happy the man who has not walked in the wicked's counsel, nor in the way of offenders has stood, nor in the session of scoffers has sat. But the Lord's teaching is his desire, and his teaching he murmurs day and night, and he shall be like a tree planted by streams of water that bears its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And in all that he does, he prospers. Not so the wicked like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand up in judgment, nor offenders in the band of the righteous. For the Lord embraces the way of the righteous, and the way of the wicked is lost. Well, I think it's good to just pause and say, what do you think and feel when you hear those words? I find myself, I'll just, maybe I'll start by answering my own question. I kind of get irritated by Psalms like this because it feels really like black and white or cut and dry or binary, like whatever kind of words you want to use of like, this happens when you're good, this happens when you're bad, which is not the way I find that life works. And so I get a little, like, I almost get defensive preemptively as soon as I hear words like this of like, yeah, yeah, but (laughs) got a lot of yeah, buts that come up. My first thought was, I am so glad we're talking about this passage for that very reason you just stated, because of the kind of platonic influence that we all have, or that most of us have in the Western world of like seeing things on a binary as opposites, as good and bad, in and out, light and dark, and was wondering, man, this is so binary, and I wonder where the nuance is, I wonder where the tension actually is, where the middle space is in this passage and I can't wait to see how we explore it for that reason well I was thinking that I really just want to be that tree like I like I that middle part when I like hear it and see it and read it I just think oh I would like my life to feel like that tree because it doesn't (laughs) Well, that's a much more beautiful and slightly <laughs> annoying way to enter into that passage. I was feeling like we, we took, we took different roles than usual. I feel like Lisa's usually more of the yeah button. She's and in this one. She's like, I want to be the tree. And we're like, Bleh. what's wrong with this psalm? <laughs> Welcome to season two. <laughs> um, 
So uh, I don't know if this affects our feelings at all or not, but um, oftentimes when we're in the Hebrew Bible, it, I, it opens up new things for me when I think about what these books are titled in Hebrew as compared to what they're titled in my Bible. So Psalms is from Greek. A lot of our titles of the books come from the, from the Septuagint, from the, from the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And so um, Psalms is from Psalmoi, uh, which is Greek, and it means instrumental music. In Hebrew, the in the Hebrew Bible, this is uh, Tehillim, uh, which means uh, praise or book of praises. So Tehillah te is praise, and so Tehillim is is plural. So that's now book of praise. So I don't know. Does does hearing it titled book of praises, and it's inside the category that there's three categories in the in the Hebrew Bible and the Tanakh. So there's Torah, and there's um, prophets, and there's writings and this is in the category of writings so in the category of writings which is uh, ketuvim we have this book does it feel any different does it just feel like a different title of a still problematic psalm well if it's not prophetic and it's not like the law or the teachings then it feels like it's a reflection of something that's happening do that again and maybe say more. Well, with <clears throat> when I think of the prophets, like prophets are really like they're calling people out, they're saying something that God wants people like for future, like something they, there's something they need to, to do to impact future. And like the first five books are really about teaching, but the Torah is like this space where we get like this is this is how it should work there's something here um it's how these are things to consider for your life hmm. but when you call it the writings then i'm like oh well it's not prophetic it's not the teachings then like the writings have, are probably something that somebody is saying like this is what i see now hmm. or something for me now maybe it's not all that way but like that's what i hear when i hear like writings. I'm going to, I love that idea, Lisa. And I'm going to give you three different categories of writing. One, you have the writing of say a bill, right. That goes to Congress and, you know, is going to shape the public policy, shape the way we do our communal life together. Right. That's the Torah. You have your preachers on a Sunday who craft a message and it's a very formal message, especially if you think of like a high liturgical church or you think of like a, a very passionate, maybe uh, more charismatic type thing where it's just going to be prophetic and in your face and bold. And then you have like someone writing in their diary and they are reflecting on life and they're talking about experiences and they're kind of moving through how they feel God is interacting with them. And maybe that diary is being read out loud to someone. Maybe it's being shared, but there's a little bit of an informality to it, a little bit more go with the flow. And sometimes it can be bold and sometimes, but it's because you can be bold in your diary. Um, and so, I don't know. Does that help at all? Yeah, well, I think especially if we like... If we really think, okay, they, they've chosen three categories for the Tanakh, for the Hebrew Bible. Torah is the first five books, 
we're going to talk about Torah because it's in the Psalm for what it means and what it doesn't mean. Um, so we'll just kind of bookmark that word, I think. Um, and then we have um, the prophets, which is actually most of it. There's a lot of books in the Navim, which is the pro- the prophets, because we have in our in the Christian Bible, we think of just the people t- named as prophets, like the, the Isaiah, the Jeremiah. So there's later, but there's minor prophets, there's major prophets, but in the Hebrew Bible, the book of Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings is also in the Navim. They're in, they're considered prophet in the prophet realm. And so the books in the writings, Psalms is the one that starts that off to Halim is the first of the writings. Then we have Proverbs, then we have Job, then we have Song of Songs, Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, and Esther are all in the category of writings. Um, and so how are we, how are we to read those differently? Um, and what is it to be aware of the kind of book you're reading and how do you read a Psalm, which is a poem or a song of praise differently? So there's a bit of sort of reading in your journal. There's also, these are meant to be communal Mm. in the ancient world. Psalms are meant to be communal. There's the meant to be the things we sing and say when we gather together. Um, and so what in them what's, what's in there for us to sing and say. And then when we're thinking about this one being the first one, this is then the introduction to the Psalms, but by being an introduction to the Psalms, there's also it's an introduction to all of the writings. Like you open the section of the talk that's writings, and this is how it begins is with Psalm one. And so what's here for us to see different than the prophets that just came before it. Well, as you named it was in there, I was kind of thinking about, um, like there's an interesting mix if you throw in job with song of songs i don't usually put them together i don't think of them as side by sides or you know lamentations and daniel um it's interesting to like the books of the bible that are considered the writings are an interesting thing of both really great stories and like painful like lament is I don't, yeah it's an interesting like Job isn't like a pop, like a happy story. <laughs> right. And I think that that's also, we also have that problem when we're looking at Psalms. So like, as Jason and I both felt like a little, Ooh, when we looked at this one, some of that happens when we look at any individual Psalm, but when you look at the Psalter as a whole, we have 150 Psalms. Some of them sound like this. Some of them are an imprecatory Psalm, like Psalm 137, where the people are so upset. They long for God to dash babies heads on the rocks, right? That is an angry Psalm. Um, and then there are Psalms that are really desperate and sad. There's some that hold a mix of both. And so how, how do we, when we read individual ones, know that there's, there's space. In fact, I'm actually thinking when I say that I've thought about this when my, um, my father passed away in 2017. And, um, when I went to, when we went to actually like see his body, which is a very, it is a, it is a very particular kind of grief in that moment in time. And, um, my, uh, his wife was like longing for words. And so I just, I, I just, I said, Psalm 23, that's what came to mind. And her response was, yeah, but I'm not there. That doesn't feel like the right words for me right now. And I said, well, Thankfully, Psalm 22 is right before Psalm 23 and Psalm 22 begins, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
So sometimes we're the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want, but the Psalm literally right before that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me side by side in the same book of writings? And so how do we hold the Psalms as a collective while we look at individual ones as a way of holding that non-binary space of this is here, but also, um, you know, Psalm two is going to be about like, where's God in the face of injustice. And those are side by side to start off the, the Psalter. So what you're saying is it's more complicated than we think. <laughs> well, because especially we tend to know particular Psalms, you know, people, you know, like a lot of people, I even said Psalm 23, assuming the listeners would know Psalm 23, because it's so everywhere. But you might not know that that psalm about crushing babies' heads is Psalm 137, because that one doesn't get put on pillows and and walls and t-shirts. But that's in there too. Like there's this space to be really, really angry, really, really messily angry about life and justice in the same book as there is a psalm about, God, you you lead me everywhere and you're so good. And it makes it interesting because when it when we often learn about the Psalms, we learn about in that context of like, these are for the community to be sung. And it's easy to imagine singing something about God's righteousness, God's goodness. It's easy to imagine singing something about being led beside the still waters. It's another thing to imagine singing together. Because when I have to imagine singing together, it's like either like a praise and worship chorus. It's like being sung at church or it's like going to a concert in either way. I don't exactly want to sing about the destruction of children. You know, like that's not my favorite concert going experience and it's not the church service that I want to go to. And so I think there's a question for me of like, okay, when it talks about singing or, or communal expression, is, is it more about a communal expression or is it about the, like, what, what do we mean by singing in this context? Because I have a very particular idea at some level what singing is. You know, I, I know that I don't know <laughs> for that one. I, I, I'm, there probably are scholars who have studied that who would, but I, I wonder if there's even some room in the mystery of it to say, like, what if we just broaden out and say, what is it to be witnessed by one another when, like someone said that about worship one, a long time ago and it stuck with me of like, you know, like I have moments when I'm in a service just like anybody where I'm like, ugh, I don't like this song. And um, somebody named that their practice when they don't like a song is to look around the room and to find somebody who likes that song and to watch them have their experience, which maybe it, that could be a little creepy <laughs> when I just said it, I'm like, oh, that sounds a little weird. But there's a way that we don't really, I don't know that we do that in the modern Western world. Like we think of something like a worship song as being about my individual experience of connection to God. And if you think communally to say, oh, this is my chance to bear witness to you as you sing a song that feels like your life. And for you to bear witness to me as I sing a song that feels like my life. And then, then here we've got communal worship as we bear witness to one another when we're being moved by different things because our life is in different places. That's good. You know, I, as you were talking, I also couldn't help but think of, well, church spaces and concerts aren't the only places where things are sung or where communities gather. And I've been reading the book, Dear White Peacemakers by Oshita Moore. And I couldn't help but imagine some potentially hard things being sung or chanted or reflected on 
in the midst of protest, in the midst of saying this injustice is no longer going to go unchecked, and how if you remove if you remove the context from that from those statements, you might find them to be off-putting if they're in a church service. But maybe they should be more in a church service. But um, but contextually speaking, there's something important about what's being said in the midst of those moments. Yeah, that that might not be like I said, like might not be like going to a church service in a way. Yeah, I mean, there's something to be said for the Psalms making room for a bunch of different kinds of expressions and maybe a challenge to modern worship, like faith communities of any sort that are doing some sort of communal expression. Are we representing the entire Psalter? <laughs> you know, there's 150 different versions of the kinds of words to, to witness each other in and to sing in praise. Um, and even to know that the book is called the praises and an angry and sad songs are included as praises and not said to be lesser or worse. Not all of those Psalms resolve in some sort of, but I trust you, God is you're good. Um, are we leaving room for all of that? Are we leaving room for things like Psalm one that feels a little black and white? Are we leaving room for ones that end unresolved? I feel like it's the question of like, can we believe that God hears all of it as praise? Mm. Say more there about that. <laughs> well, I think there's a, at a certain point I was taught, there's a particular way of praising God that elevates God, that shows that you have faith, you have trust, you're doing the right things, you're following what God wants you to do. Like that's praise. And thinking about all the Psalms being praised means that even when I am saying like, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God hears that as praise. That the distinction I'm making is not the distinction that God makes. Well, and maybe that actually takes us right to the beginning of this Psalm as we long for it to get a little bit more complicated. Your translation said happy. My translation did not say happy as the first word of this Psalm. I'm curious if Jason's had a different word. I had happy. happy. Well. So some translations put blessed, um, which can feel particularly, I don't know, I have feelings about it, but it's not, it's not the Hebrew word for blessed. <laughs> it is the happy is the better translation, which of course alter would be alter would would make that uh choice so <laughs> um but the word is asher and i wonder if we remember if that name has meaning to anybody if that word has meaning to anybody for where that takes us it's one of the is it one of the tribes it's one yes. of the tribes mm -hmm. so asher is one of the tribes and here we have in genesis 30 i can read it then Leah said, I am happy for the daughters will call me blessed. So she called his name Asher. She's using this word several times. Sarah, um, happiness coming from Asher. I am that the daughters will call me that. Um, so they will call me Asher so that here it's being translated as blessed, but we have this word Asher again, that's happy. Um, they will call me happy. And so I will call him happy. So it's, the word is Asher, which is to go straight or to walk forward, to make progress. What's happy about the, the that's, that's the verb at the root. What's, what makes you, what is happiness 
if we think of the verb action at the root of it as going straight, going forward, making progress. Can you repeat the question? Like, what? Yeah. Well, so we, when we're in Hebrew, every word goes back to verbs. Every word is rooted in verbs. And in English, so we, it pushes us to think more deeply about like in English, if I said, what would you say happiness is? Most of us would name a feeling, right? But happiness in Hebrew goes back to an action word because everything goes back to a verb or an action word. The action word at the root of this word happy is to go forward. So it's, it's, it's same, same pronunciation, asher, to go forward, to make, to go straight, to advance, to make progress, to be on level ground, to guide, to be relieved. That's the verb. Well, it's again, it's how I would like my life to be. I would like it. To, I don't need all the, like the side, the straight path where you can see where you're going. You can see where you've been. You can like the whole thing just feels like it lines up real nicely happy well i was thinking of the word stability like when you were reading that list of all the things going forward you know progress all that i was just thinking like that sounds stable to me like we're headed in a direction intentional so leah is using that name and naming this child and here's the context of her name using that name for a child is that she and her sister are having a competition for Jacob because Jacob wanted to marry Rachel got sort of stuck with Leah Leah turns out to be real fertile and so she's been having all of these children then Rachel says is decides to have bring in her servant Bilha to have some children on her behalf. Then Leah is like, well, that's all right. I'm going to bring in Zilpa to have some kids on my behalf. And in the and this is happening right in the middle of that. And she's actually naming Zilpa's child Asher. So she has pulled in a maidservant um, to have a child on her behalf because she's in competition with her sister for their husband's attention. And she is saying this. I'm going to name this child happy. My path is straight. Well, I usually pull in uh, the good Reverend Dr. Wilda Gaffney when we're talking about women uh, bearing children on behalf of other women, which the Bible translates frequently as maid servant, maid servant. Um, and she refers to them as womb slaves. And that's part of that story. Um, and I think it's important to, like, I appreciate that we actually named Bilha and Zilpa because often we only talk about Rachel and Leah. So it is a complicated story. And it's, it's interesting <laughs> that, um, like, she's naming it for herself. She's saying the other people will say this about me. I'm going to call this son this. And it's almost like it's what she wants to be true, but it's actually not what's true. Okay. It's what she wants to be true, but it's not actually what's true. How many of us have that kind of relationship with a word like happy or blessed or straight or forward or unstuck or stable or with our social media accounts? <laughs> right. Like there is a way that the word itself might not sound complex. Oh, it's, it's straight, it's forward, it's stable, it's happy. But when we look at who's using it, when there is a way that like just dropping into this story real quick says, oh, there's a way of naming it perhaps as a longing or a hope 
or a, but it's not what my life is. I'm calling myself happy. I'm calling myself Asher, but uh, there's a lot to still be worked out. There's a lot that is not straight about the path ahead. It's like there's a built-in tension to that word. Even though it seems very clear and straightforward, there's, you know, it's like when you bump into somebody and you haven't seen them in a while. Like, hey, how are you? You know, oh, I'm doing great. And then, are you really? You know, and like, of course, you don't ask that follow-up question. But if you were to ask that follow-up question, you find out like, oh, they're actually going through it and it's not easy right now. And they've got some relational difficulties or works hard. And, and yet they want to be great. They want to be fine. They want to be happy, but it's maybe not quite how it is. Well, and, and, and the best, like, sometimes we maybe use the word happy when we're sort of lying or like, or the, like, like we're feeling we're supposed to be something or we, like we put on our happy church faces and like show up looking the way we're supposed to look. But I wonder if there's also a space to almost th to think of it like in yoga. Um, I love doing yoga and there's often a pause for like noticing or hoping for your intent for the practice. And you, and you just give yourself space to have an intention and that intention may or may not all, like you might get distracted. You might be able to hold a pose or not hold a pose, but there's still like space for the intention. And I, I wonder if there's a way to think of Asher as a bit of that intention towards a straight path that I'm setting. I'm going to name that sort of intention towards that. I'm going to hope for that. I know that life is more complex than that, but there's still value in maybe naming an intention towards happy, straight, and smooth. Does that feel like it fits? I think it could fit. And I also think that we live in a day and age where like someone being happy is either like Lisa mentioned kind of really quickly, like social media fake, right? Like everything's happy. Look at my perfect life. Or the it's the opposite of like being happy is like so uncool that you really have to be disgruntled all the time and off put all the time and you have to be cynical all the time and so to even pretend to be happy for a minute is to like represent something false when what's wrong with just enjoying the moment or like being grateful for the things that are actually going in the healthy direction and being able to celebrate that yeah, you know, and knowing that it might not last forever, or maybe even knowing that there's some tension behind it. But like, you know, yesterday, my kids are outside playing in the snow on the ice rink. And I just looked out my wife and I looked out the window. And it was just like, okay, we know they're going to go crazy in a minute. And they're going to come back in and they're going to argue and they're going to fight and they're going to hate the dinner we have prepared. But like, that's a magical winter wonderland out there that they're enjoying. And that's just beautiful. Like, let's just honor and celebrate that. Well, and when we go back to Psalm 1 now and think of this sort of intention towards a straight path or that also sort of makes sense then when we're thinking, okay, straight is the path of the human who has not followed the counsel of the wicked or taken the path of sinners. That sort of idea of the stability of a straight path, of a direction, of a um, that is in that word happiness goes right along with all that other imagery of these other things are leading you in the wrong direction. 
you're happy when your path is straight, when it's going in a direction and you're not winding on these other paths by these other influences, go ahead and like follow that, be there, don't follow them, follow this. Which the this is sort of given in verse two. So what are we what are we following? What's giving us that path? So Asher is the human that doesn't walk in these other ways, but delights in the law of the Lord. So we can we can unpack all of those words, but I wonder how it feels to just read them in English first. What to Happy and straight is the path of the human who delights in the law of the Lord. How's that sound and feel? I want to know what Lisa's thinking. <laughs> well, I'm not a big fan of. I, this is where happy is a weird word for me. Because like, it makes it go like, oh, <laughs> happy when you delight in the law of the Lord. I don't know anybody who delights in the law of the Lord. I've never met somebody who is like delighted by it. It always feels like it's a weight. It's a, it's a challenge. We don't ever quite do it right. I don't know. Or if they are someone who I might, like if I'm feeling generous in my judgment, then I just, I, they're not my favorite people, which sounds like, it makes me sound like such a jerk. <laughs> but there's all like, I, that, they don't seem to understand me as, they don't understand me well well so <clears throat> this is where perhaps we we use a different word than happy that'll help us get in the right direction because what remember what we're really talking about with happy is like a straight path which has a certain pleasure to it but that's the verb at the root of it is the happiness that comes with a straight path a straight direction right and so straight is the path is is of this person who delights in the law of the Lord. So we have the word delight is um, hafetz, which I giggled about because it really is like, when you said, I don't know if I know anybody who has that. I'm like, yeah, I don't know if I do either because it's like to incline to or bend to or be pleased with or desire in a word that's usually used as like sexual desire. <laughs> like, I really want that. I can't wait to have that. <laughs> I <laughs> Like, I don't know anybody who like <laughs> feels that way about the Bible. So we're thinking about chefetz, which is this word that is usually used for um, the delight of, of the excitement you feel towards another human that you are attracted to. It is a word of attraction. Is it a word? It is a word of desire. It's like bending towards this thing that you um, are having pleasure in and want more of to move towards it. And it's saying that's the feeling towards the law of the Lord. How many people have that feeling towards a law of any sort, <laughs> towards the Lord, towards writings, towards. I mean, other than maybe a few random senators or Congress people who really get excited about like the constitution I can't imagine many people who are giddy and overly excited from a emotional, physical standpoint for the law of the Lord. I mean, it just doesn't, 
that's such a weird idea. And right. And that, that takes us into like, let's zoom out for a second and then we'll zoom back in on this of like, this is what it's like to study the Psalms, right? We've, we've, we've looked at some other kinds of verses and and passages in here, but Psalms is a little bit, when you really sink into them, it feels a little disjointed sometimes or a little meandering sometimes because we're in the realm of poetry and in the realm of poetry, it is very full of images and it doesn't always feel as full of images to us in the modern world as and across language and like we're losing some of the parallelism that's in the Hebrew, but it is art. These are artistically written things that are meant to convey dramatic feelings, dramatic action, the way that poetry and art does for us as well, where a word choice sometimes makes us go, oh, oh. <laughs> I wonder why that poet chose that word. That's supposed to be there in the Bible too, to have that pause and say, oh, hafetz, whoa, that's a strong word. What kind of imagery are you drawing me into through choosing that word in this artistic piece of poetry that you're having me sing? I'm going to, I'm going to notice that you chose that word. I'm going to pause here. I'm going to feel it. I'm going to see it. I'm going to get lost in it a little bit. I'm going to let it be clunky as I find my way towards some of these images that you're helping to convey. Thank you, artistic Psalm writer, Um, right? Like, do we read the Psalms with, with the viewpoint that it was an artist who wrote them, who wants us to read it artistically and, and be a little uncomfortable sometimes? have that posture of wonder. And in the ancient world, the poetry is most often really imagery based. It's not, I mean, we've got parallelism and things, but these are people who live in, um, in a world that doesn't have air conditioning, that doesn't have electric light. So a lot of the uh, images are just much more like gritty than, than we might have in the modern world where it's about our bodies. It's about our physical experiences. It's about being outside because that is what is meaningful to them. That is what their experiences reflect. So people know what it is to be delighted in something. And so the psalmist chooses that very physical word of like that feeling is actually a feeling that can guide you when it's pointed towards the law of the Lord. attention to the verbs that are in here not walking it's not standing not sitting but it is in this delight this attraction this bending towards and meditating what actions actually feel very natural which is the walking sitting and standing what doesn't feel quite as natural is actually the ones that you're supposed to be doing which is that is that desire and or delight and meditating Right. And, and the psalmist is saying, like, when you take that delight, when you move into that meditation, that's what roots you like a tree. And then all of that movement is going to come from a different place. That feeling of happy that is that straight path, like a tree is growing where it's planted and it's going to bear the fruit because it took the time to root well. And it's sort of directing us. Don't just like start following these other people. That's not where you're going to find the direction you're looking for. Like, root like a tree, find your way to the water, meditate, delight there and let something grow. Well, and it reminds me of like relational dynamics, right? Like, especially if that's what the psalmist, and I love that you pointed out that like the Psalms are 
trying to elicit things in us like emotions and touch points and to kind of maybe jar us out of our normal way of framing things. And, and they're, they're trying to invite us into something. And I can't help but think of like a relationship that has all that passionate energy towards something. And I mean, if you're planting a young tree, right, that you want to grow, man, I really hope those roots grow fast and are excited about the soil and go down quick and establish themselves so that they can bring up the nutrients and really make this tree solid that it's not going to get blown away and it's not going to get knocked over. Like I want that, like that energy. And and that should be the same for me. Like if, you know, I, I want that energy to ground me in the, the law in and ground me in the word. And so that I can like have those deep roots. Um, but in order to like get it, I kind of have to have that like relational passion, you know, that, that might not last forever, but it's going to like get me into it. And, um, you know, I couldn't help but think of, there's a song, it's a, a song that was sung at church services for a long time. And the line goes, when heaven meets earth, like a sloppy wet kiss, my heart starts beating wildly out of my chest. And some, some churches would change that lyric because they thought the idea of heaven and earth meeting like a sloppy wet kiss was, was too erotic to be sung in churches. And so they would change it to like a tender kiss. Um, but either way, it was this imagery that was meant to like get you thinking dynamically about what does it mean for God's kingdom or for heaven to like be met in this space? And could it be this dynamic and passionate thing? And, um, and so we, yeah, we use language like that all the time. It's just, we read it in the Bible and it feels a little weird. Right. And what if we let the Bible be artistic? What if we let it feel a little weird? What if we wonder why those words are there and sit in them a little bit and say, okay, what's the last thing I delighted for? Um, what am I delighting in these days? What if delight's not a bad thing? And what if it's meant to point me in a direction? And am I letting it point me in that direction? I feel like it's going to help us as we continue down this to talk about this word law. Well, before we get there, Steph, can we just yeah. clarify like this word delight? I mean, we've, we've connected it very naturally to like, almost like a, a loving, passionate, almost sexual desire, attraction. But I mean, when I look at my life, I mean, there's a lot of things that I'm like, very passionate for, um, and really excited about. And it's not a sexual thing, but it is something that occupies a lot of the different realms that make up Jason. It's cognitive, it's emotional, it's relational, it's even physical at times, right? Like, I want to go do something. I want to you know, like I remember when I was into running a lot um, before my knee started to hurt, like, man, I'd wake up thinking about my run and I'd get excited about my run. I'd tell my wife about my run. I would map out my run and then I'd go run. And it would be like this, you know, 10, 10, 10 mile thing. And I'd be so excited about it. It's like all I could think about all day long was going on that run. And it wasn't like a sexual thing, obviously, but it was this, like, I was delighting in it. Like I loved the idea of doing it and getting done with it and being able to like celebrate that I did it. And so I, I kind of wonder if there's more nuance to this word than um, than just like deep relational passion towards someone. Yeah, I mean it's it's used it's it's used actually in um, 
I, I wonder if you knew this, Lisa, when you picked this passage, because we were talking about Dinah, it's used in the passage about Dinah. No, I did not. Um, <laughs> that's the first time this is used, that, um, that the man had delight in Jacob's daughter. So that one is very much in that realm of the physical sort of delight. But then the next time it's used is, about, is in Numbers 14. If the Lord delights in us, then he will bring us to this good land, this land flowing with milk and honey. It's often that then in, in Deuteronomy, it's used a little bit problematically actually about sort of there's some patriarchy in it with male, female. And if we, if like you stop delighting in this woman, you have a way out, uh, it becomes a bit of that. There is a mix, but it's, but it is a strong word. It's a physical word is talking about that sort of, I mean, as you use that analogy of, of running, like your energy is pointed in this direction. If you're, if you have that chafetz. And you're thinking about it. You're wondering about it. You're excited about it. It sounds like a complicated word too, which <laughs> is probably why the psalmist is choosing to use it. Like it's got its own history with these people that would uh, elicit a reaction. And for us, I mean, it was complicated for us right away too, right? Like, because there's a way, sometimes delight is a good thing. Sometimes delight has not been the best for us. And how do you you got to kind of um, sit with it a little bit and to say, yeah, what am I delighting for? Why am I delighting for that? What does it mean to turn that sense of delight and desire towards the Torah of the Lord? The word that was being translated as law um, is Torah. And this is a really good one to pause on because especially in Christian circles, we tend to think of law. When we hear the word law, we tend to think of Leviticus. Um, we tend to think that law is a list of do's and a list of don'ts. Maybe we throw in a little Exodus 20, 10 commandments into there, but we're thinking about law as do's and don'ts. <clears throat> but the word here in Psalm one and often in Hebrew when it says, when it's being translated as law, it's this, um, it's the word Torah. When we have the word Torah, we're thinking about a lot of things. We're thinking about one thing with Torah is when we think about even how this organ, this book is organized, as we started our conversation with Torah in the organization of the scriptures and which would have existed potentially a bit at the time the Psalms are written into the scrolls. We got five books in the Torah. So yes, Leviticus is in the Torah, but so is Genesis 1 that we spend some time talking about. Delight in Genesis 1. Delight in the whole, all, everything in these first five books. Like how does that start to shift what it's telling us to do and like what we're taking as law? But then we can also think about the meaning of the word itself. So Torah means teaching or instruction. And it's because it comes from the word yare which is a word that is used in archery and it's to shoot or cast something at a target. And so the verb at the root of Torah is aiming. When we talk about verbs going and at the root of all these Hebrew words, Torah that's being translated law, a little better translated teaching, the verb action at the root of it is to aim in a direction and to shoot in a direction. So what is it to say that God is giving us a direction and we are to delight in that direction that God is giving us. Does that change how it feels to engage with Psalm 1, verse 2? Delight, desire, the way that God is aiming you. Delight, desire, in the first five books 
Yeah, again, it, it kind of depends on how you see those first five books. If you're naturally inclined to see them as rigid and very, you know, rules oriented, that still might feel a little tough. But if you are seeing those first five books as invitation into this more dynamic way of being human, complicated way, a way that honors the tension that we experience in relationship, but that is ultimately a trajectory towards shalom, healthy relationship, reconciliation, God meeting us in the midst of the mess and, and providing community and um, protection, uh, then yeah, that, that direction would, is good. When I'm, I mean, I'm nerdy for or and I spend my time here, but I think of like how much joy I find sometimes in this way of study when there's ways that like we'll just get deep into a conversation about something like Genesis 12 and what it is to leave what you've known and go towards what God has is showing you, or in the book of Exodus, and we're thinking about what it is to leave a narrow place and go into an unknown future. And like all of these conversations we get to have because of the ways the narrative of the human experience are in these first five books. Um, I've had a huge amount of delight and desire to study those more and to be in conversation about those more. Once I was exposed to a way of studying it that wasn't binary and black and white in law, once I was able to see the richness that's here, it feels like I could study these, I could study just the first five books for the rest of my life and keep finding new things in them because they're so rich and deep and beautiful and wonderful. And so there is a way that there's a desire and a delight in that for me. And I wonder, I wonder there if it's been a little bit bringing in the next word, which is the teaching, the Torah of the Lord, which my Bible has in the capital letters, which means that is the specific and personal name of God used in the Hebrew Bible that was given to Moses in Exodus three of, okay, if I go back and free these people, who should I say sent me? And God says, Aye, asher, aye, which is the verb to be in Hebrew and the imperfect tense. God names that as God's name. <laughs> um, and then that keeps getting used in the Bible as the name of God as in a shortened form. And it's, I want to be a little sensitive to this because um, Christians tend to sort of throw out the name, the shortened form of the name, but it's seen as very holy uh, to many Jewish populations where they wouldn't want us to just throw out the name that's used. Um, and so, um, spelling the name, it's the Hebrew letters, Yud, Hey, Vav, Hey, um, which has this idea of, I was what I was, I am what I am. I will be what I will be. Or, um, like Rabbi Nahum Ward Love, uh, uses this, uh, terminology of the living presence to translate that, which I've, I've really taken to. And so there's a way that when we string all of this together, we're being pointed to this, like having a delight in the directional teaching of the living presence. Say that again. But having a delight in the directional teaching of the living presence who was, is, and will be with us. See, now that sounds way easier to wrap my mind around being something I would delight in. The idea of the directional way of the living presence that has been is and will be i mean 
I almost just want to say amen. <laughs> like, yes. As opposed to when you say delight in the law of the Lord, I'm like, wah, wah. you know, like that just sounds boring and oppressive. Whereas delighting in the directional way of the living presence that was and is and ever will be. Yeah. Sign me up. Like let's, let's do it. Why does it feel so different? feels active involved relational i mean like the idea of the living presence just sounds like it's part of me and i'm invited into it and i'm connected to something deep as opposed to the law which has always been used especially and not and not in like a mean way i don't want to be i want to be really careful about upbringings and things like that and the way the bible's been taught but the the law was always so binary and like either you're a good christian or you're a bad christian a good little boy or a bad boy and like there's this you know in and out and as opposed to like flow and movement and participation like you know i i think of even the way i want to communicate the law of the lord to my boys I want to invite them into something. I don't want them to feel shamed by something because they're going to break the rules. I mean, they're for crying out loud, they're 11 and six year old boys. Like they're going to mess up. Um, And so I don't want them to feel the shame of the law. Instead, I want to invite them into the tension of the law, invite them into the relational presence that says we're making all things good and we're moving towards the hope of, of God. And so, yeah, I think that's why it feels so different. It starts to bring out like how we view God changes how we read any of these things. If God is close and with us and present, that feels very different than if God is more like a Zeus, like sitting up on a th- a throne far from us and watching, right? And this verse can read that way at first. There's some God on high who's far away, who has dictated a law that we are to follow. Well, gosh, that feels kind of hard to delight in. (laughs) But if we view God as close, as near, as with us, as moving and breathing and directing our steps, that's a very different thing that we are delighting in. Lisa, you've had some nods to that conversation. Well, I think it just it actually lines up with us being poetry because sometimes like in English and the translations, I read Psalms as if they are, as if they are Leviticus, if if they are like a X, Y, Z, this is what you do. And this actually feels like it opens it up into, into, um, I, it just, I don't know what it does. I can't, I don't know what the words are. <laughs> like it's poetry. Like poetry emotes a different feeling. It has a different, I feel differently when I read it and when I hear it and how I connect to it. And sometimes poetry requires patience. Like I feel like all of that right now, the energy of this conversation has shifted, right? Just, just, we got here and we were, it was, I don't know it was a little stumbly before because we weren't quite getting there. And that's the way it feels sometimes to read poetry, right? Where at first glance, you're like, oh, I don't really get that. Or like, oh, but sometimes you got to just read it a few times and sit with it and go, oh, okay, 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 okay. And then all of a sudden we're like, oh my gosh, I love this poem, but not always right away. Yeah, I love that you brought that up because I was even thinking as as Lisa was talking and, and as we're framing this kind of place that we're in, 
that there's this trajectory of God and this movement, but then at the end it ends with, but the way of the wicked will perish or, you know, the, and it's, and it just seems like, eh, wah, wah, like here we are again, like you know, how we frame God, right? Is God a Zeus type figure sitting on Mount Olympus? Here are the laws. And if you violate them, lightning bolts, because it kind of seems to end that way, right? If we're looking at this almost legally, it kind of seems to end with, and if you don't go this way, you will perish. But if I read it poetically, if I enter into it emotively, there's there's something like if this is a love letter, if this is an invitation into a romance, if this is an invitation into a journey, but I choose not to go on it, well then I'm missing out. Like I'm not I'm not doing the dance. Like I'm sitting on the side and that would feel like perishing that feel like non-existence to not go in the movement to not enter the flow to not participate i mean what else is there but to participate and the rest of it is the way that leads to perishing because you're not you're not caught up in you know the recreation of all things and and so like i think if i enter into it poetically i i don't view it as judgmentally i view it as much more invitational so in Hebrew poetry, the climax is usually not the end, it's in the middle. Um, that it's framing up, it, it, the parallelism frames up towards the middle of something. So in this psalm, the emphasis is on being that tree planted by the streams of water. So that's, that's even a part of poetry too, is to say the end is actually not as important as the middle. And what the middle is framing up for us is that you're like a tree planted by streams of water who bears its fruit and season whose foliage never fades whatever it does that thrives that's the climax for us and the other stuff is framing how we get there or what else life looks like if we're not there hmm. as we move towards that center of being that tree and i'm with you on like i kind of wish that it didn't have some of that other part i'm like oh i wish the psalm was a little more just feel good okay but i also i did a quick look at the the ending because i was like parish feels weird that feels off like in our conversation so and alter actually uses the word lost instead of parish which as i was thinking about like all the actions like lost kind of lines up with that all the motions that we we're kind of talking about but then also uh verse six for the lord knows is yada well, that my brain made this connection. And so I can't unknow this connection. So I'll share it with you all. So you also can't unknow this connection. It's a Seinfeld like reference. When Seinfeld, the, the yada, 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 it is this like yada is that intimate knowledge. So it's translated actually as embrace. So like the Lord embraces, like, which I feel like actually then feels like it pulls right back up into the, the delight there's an interesting kind of connection in this home. Like we're staying in the same kind of line. And so, it, and instead of like saying like the way of the, of the good, like, cause it is like the ungodly evil. And so usually we see like good and evil put together, but we're seeing righteous. I don't know. Like for me, that does a lot of like opening up. Yeah. How this is ending. Yes. Okay. Let's talk about verse six a little bit, because I think there is some good goodness here in, in those words, because 
um, sometimes when we were, we hear a word like ungodly or wicked, we just think, oh, somebody who's not worshiping God enough, um, or like, what are God's expectations? But it is good. So it's good to pause and say, okay, how does God define, like, what is that? Was it, what is this wickedness? And what is this righteousness that's being talked about in this verse? And the, there are words for sin that are really like, were, so we talked about Torah being Yireh and being aiming. There are words for sin like chet that's missing the mark. That's just like, a, oops, I aimed wrong. And in that case, that's where the word repentance comes in, like, because repentance means turn. So oops, I aimed wrong, like turn, return, make our way back. That's not the word being used here. The word for wicked here is rasha, which is, to, is an intentional wickedness. It is an intentional troubling of the waters. It is an intentional vexing, an intentional wrongdoing that is being talked about in verse six for that way is going to, is going to get lost. The intentional wrongdoing gets lost. The Lord cherishes, embraces, knows the way of the Sedek. Sedek is being translated as righteous. It could also be translated as just. There's a justice orientation whose way God embraces. And there is a way of intentionally doing wrong to harm others, to disrupt and trouble the world that will be lost or will fade or will perish. Does that make that verse feel any different? I think here's why I think I end up with having trouble with these kinds of verses is I am reading from the place of privilege. Mm -hmm. And I forget how much, if I am reading from the position of the oppressed, how much comfort I would find in verses saying, one day wrongs will be righted. Those who've intentionally troubled the waters and, and done wrong in your life, that will fade. I am embracing the way of the just. That would feel very different to me if I felt like there hadn't been justice in my life. And I think sometimes when I want it to not say things like that about wicked, it's actually revealing of my, of my privilege because that makes me uncomfortable instead of giving me comfort. I think that's such an important perspective as we read this. And I, I would assume as we continue to navigate the Psalms. Right, if we are, if we are reading as oppressed people, then we're, we're, when all these verses of the wicked are going to be like the chaff that blows away would be saying your oppressors will not stay oppressors forever. The wicked will not, like there's going to be judgment coming that again, these things would feel good to me if I have been wronged. I would maybe want to even embroider those on a pillow. And I would want that paired with that promise that I can be like a tree that can grow even in a drought, because that means my life might feel like a drought right now. And God might be saying to me, go ahead, root in me, root in my presence that is with you in the direction I am giving you. And one day justice will come and you can trust me. Um, that would feel much more comforting. That would just, that would all just feel comforting to me in a different way. I think, I don't, I don't know for sure. Maybe, maybe I would maybe feel a little bit more like Psalm 137 and want God to come in with some swift justice now, but. Maybe both, right? Maybe, maybe both. both. As much as I want to say like, oh, I got to the end of this psalm and I like, I could join this choir. Maybe it's one where I probably just witness. Right. And, and what a, what a good place to sort of um, close this out, right. To say like, okay, 
So some, some of us in this conversation might feel like, oh my gosh, I used to love this Psalm. Now I don't love it. <laughs> some of us might feel like, oh, I used to be like confused by that song. And that one thing you said about like delighting in the directional teaching of the living presence. Yes. That makes me love this Psalm. And some of us might be like, oh, that's not enough. <laughs> it's, it's not my favorite. And then to go back to the conversation of, of what it is to hold the Psalms as a whole book and to say, there are 150 of them. It is okay to not love all of them. Um, they're not all for us individually. They are all for us communally. And that is a different way to hold it, to say it doesn't have to always be my favorite because if for somebody it's out there, it's the words they need. And that's why it's here and it's poetry. And so sometimes an image is going to relate to us in poetry. Sometimes that tree imagery is just what we need. And sometimes we need the imagery of the shepherd in Psalm 23. And that's just what we need. And again, there's space for that. There is room for 150 different Psalms with all of the different artistic language they bring, with all of the perspective they bring. And what is it to read each one and wonder what's here for me today, what's here for us today, and what's here for someone else today? And to walk away with what we walk away with and say it belongs. I'm also not a huge fan of Psalm 1. I would say this study did not redeem Psalm 1 for me. <laughs> but I also want to honor that it is the way the book begins. And so there's something in it that's worth going back to and wrestling with and digging in and see what we can find in it. So maybe that's part of our, our word for, for those listening is to say, okay, what is your takeaway from this study? What is something you want to dig into more? What's something you want to do in your life? What's something you want to think about more? Because that's going to be different for each of us. And it's valuable to just pause before we go on to our next thing and declare that intent. And maybe enter into that idea of Asher by saying, okay, how do I have an intention to move in a straight direction? Um, and what's there for you today from Psalm 1? This podcast is a partnership between 40 Orchards and Processing Faith. 40 Orchards invites people to wrestle through biblical texts using the ancient Jewish concepts of Midrash. In a 40 Orchards study, every question is safe, everyone is welcome, and every voice is valued. We believe there's room for all of us. No person and no question is off limits because we know that together we can expand each other's experience of what is sacred, whole, and good. You can learn more about 40 Orchards and sign up for a study by going to 40orchards.org. That's 40orchards.org. Processing Faith is a space created by Jason Steffenhagen for people to do exactly that, process their faith. It's not one thing, but more like a good recipe. It's like one part pastoral care, one part theological exploration, and one part wrestling with all the questions. You can learn more about Processing Faith and sign up for a free 45-minute session by going to ProcessingFaith.com. Thanks again for joining us on Searching the Safety.